Hello, and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media, and made possible thanks to our presenting sponsor, Akeda. I am your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I'm your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and your other host, Amy Board. And I'm reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. You're also wearing a sweatshirt that says read. I was going to call out your sweatshirt. Well, I get it. All right. Hold on. Let's go to that. All right. Look, we got other things to talk about. <laughs> NBDF has landed a new CEO and HFA yes. has responded to the recent organizational changes and the communities will say uh, initial responses. Yep. Plus, are physicians excited to add gene therapy to the current treatment landscape? They are. Oh, so we don't need to. Okay. No. Well, I guess you should still <laughs> listen to the segment. But apparently the answer is yes. Dr. Mark Redding, evidently, and Dr. Stephen Pipe, apparently, in today's gene therapy segment, speak to that. And we've got the latest and greatest from Maya Bloomberg. You know the Heme MP today to talk to us about Rare Disease Day coming up later this month. We've got all that and more talk of sweatshirts. Welcome to Bloodstream. Listeners, thank you, as always, for joining us today. And if you like what you hear, please share this episode on social media or wherever. You yeah. can always subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You could print out a flyer and put it up in a local coffee shop. We won't or stop you. Or a library. Or a library. You know what? Somebody did yesterday ask for permission if they could make t-shirts about one of our shows or one of our programs for an upcoming thing. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I was like, blanket, yes. 100% you never have blanket, to ask permission. yes, great. You can always make merch for stuff we do. Yes. I'm going to get sued one day. Back on track, I do want to remind you, dear listeners, that the Bloodstream Podcast is indeed made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I don't Takeda. think Amy's going to be able to get through no. all of this. No, <laughs> Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds, Amy Board. Yes. And they are committed now more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they may be. And you can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, although I would be shocked if you need this, bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream podcast, I would just like to say thanks, Takeda. Thank you, Takeda. And thank you to segment sponsor CSL Bearing for supporting our gene therapy segment. And we're both wearing sweatshirts. <laughs> we are both wearing sweatshirts. I just, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but <laughs> no, I no, was no. thinking it the whole time. I was like, the second that we started recording, I'm like, I'm going to mention our sweatshirts because it's raining today in LA and not just like, oh, it's a sprinkle. It is like deluge. And it has been. For and a it while has been. Now. And it's going to for a while. It's like won't let up. So there's like a lot of flooding. So it's very soggy in LA. LA. It's like the only weather we get. Mm -hmm. If if it if this were the Midwest, we would be full full tilt blizzard. But I just thought it yeah, was so we funny that we're both wearing sweatshirts. And if we were in the Midwest, it'd be full tilt blizzard. But yes. we'd also be in business professional clothing, <laughs> making no mention of it. But because we live in Los Angeles, we're like it's raining outside, so we had to put on sweatshirts and talk about it on the show. It's an event. Oh, but it's true. It's true. I also have to tell you, I was looking last week. It was uh, it was nearing laundry day. Oh, and I didn't have any like external meetings, just like internal whatever it was. So I wasn't particularly concerned with like what my top was. And uh, coming up on a meeting, and it was like with a fancy person. Mm. And I was like, and I saw this Mickey Mouse 
sweatshirt, mm-hmm. which I'm pretty sure I've worn on the show before. <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh, and I really wanted to wear that. But I was like, I, okay, this is a business call with a fancy person you've never met before. Mm. I think, even though it's raining, I think you can wear something a little bit more elevated than a Mickey Mouse sweatshirt. I get on I the get call. It. Yeah, okay. He is wearing a Mickey Mouse sweatshirt. I do not believe. Are you serious? Why would I make this story up? Okay. I was, I, my point was going to be, you know, there's just, there's like a tick too far. Like I believe in sweatshirts. You know, I right. wear a lot of sweatshirts. I do know that. And yeah. I wear a lot of sweatshirts on fancy calls. Yeah, well, hey. And I just, I wear a lot of Taylor Swift merch on, fan- <laughs> on that, client calls. That's fine right now. She's Which like, is, yeah. you know, it's a thing. And I was going to say, I think that's like a lot, like maybe Mickey Mouse isn't the thing. And look, look, maybe it's a thing. I, I, I think I learned something on that call. I did, of course, have to tell him immediately that 100... I nearly wore my Mickey Mouse without saying, but I was afraid it would be too unprofessional. <laughs> so I had to find it off ramp after I started sharing that and then was like, wait, don't Incredible. insult him. The Incredible. first three minutes of this call are very unexpected. Incredible. Um, so there we go. We've talked about sweatshirts. We're going to talk about gene therapy. We're going to talk about rare disease day. But we have a few updates. We got to bring people first. So we had a big update. Uh, we got Everyone, a big update. It's it's the scuttlebutt. It's the bleeding disorders community scuttlebutt. It is true. Um, we have been waiting to hear of a new uh, chief executive officer to take the role. Was this the bit? Is this the scuttlebutt yeah. that you're referring to? Yeah. Oh, for a moment I got to look like no, the other scuttlebutt. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, we are in a period of multiple scuttlebutts. I would not be surprised. Um, but no, there's now a new CEO, yeah. uh, Phil Gatone, who has a, an impressive track record, according to the press release. Uh, most notably and most recently from the epilepsy world. He was the president and CEO of the Epilepsy Foundation yeah. from 2012 to 2019. We're not going to go deep diving into Phil's bio because he will be coming on the Bloodstream podcast here in the not too distant future. Uh, but just a couple of things that are notable during that period where he was CEO of the Epilepsy Foundation of America um, the EFA experienced record growth and community engagement, strategic partnerships, marketing, programming, and fundraising, notable amongst other things, which uh, you're welcome to read. We can put a link in the program notes. And then again, we'll talk about this with Phil when we have him on the show. Yeah. Amy, at first read, at first hearing of this news, anything in particular that stuck out to you? I think... And it's not in this bio, so I don't know where I read it. Okay. I'll trust that you read it and you're not <laughs> making it up. I'm a little like, where did I read it? It's not in this bio. I love that somewhere, <laughs> somewhere. Somewhere out there. Somebody printed in relation to his uh, appointment at NBDF was that the epilepsy, you know, his tenure, had a long, long tenure there, which I think is just like a good, a good sign. Uh, he left um, uh, that organization, but that organization is structured like ours. It has many mm. local chapters. It has like a national mm. organization and then a very strong local chapter network. And that was very encouraging. You know, I think our local chapter network is the lifeblood of our community. And um, to have someone that understands the importance of the work that those people do on the ground um, is essential. So that was the thing that that I was like, OK, all right, Phil. Yeah, super yeah. encouraging. That's yeah. a, that's a great point. I was struck in that one sentence that I did read uh, about. I read other stuff too, but in the <laughs> sentence I did read, the first thing that it points to record growth, community engagement, community engagement. The second yeah. thing is strategic partnerships. Yeah. The fifth and final thing is fundraising, which yeah. is often what we talk about. Yeah. And not to overanalyze one sentence in the order of some words, but I do think that the fundraising growth 
ought to be a result of progress in all these other areas. Of course, if you're having more community engagement, building interesting partnerships, increasing the programming offerings that you're getting out to your community. Yeah. People are going to want to contribute more to what you're doing. So yeah. that's encouraging to me. And I'm ex- I'm mostly encouraged to just meet and talk with Phil and welcome him and see what he's all about. Introduce him to the audience. Give you all an opportunity. Speaking of, mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com or social media. If you have questions, if you have thoughts, if you have things you would like to communicate to the new chief executive officer of the National Bleeding Disorders Foundation, here is your opportunity Email us, mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com, or ping Amy, ping me on one of the social media platforms. Send your questions, send your comments. Don't be shy. Another bit of scuttlebutt, Amy, that I thought you may be referring to, but no. Uh, The other national organization, though I don't want to give it that framing every time, uh, the Hemophilia Federation of America. They responded to some of the community's reaction, learning of the restructuring and the downsizing of staff and so on and so forth. I had a very good discussion since the last episode with the CEO, Dan Kelsey, mm-hmm. as well as the board president, Luke Runyon. Um, Dan is going to also be coming on the Bloodstream podcast in the not-too-distant future, so we'll have an opportunity to speak with him directly and in-depth about the vision for the organization, how he plans to take it there, what he's made of this moment in time, his first six months with our community, and so on and so forth. So that'll be coming soon as well. Uh, I think that dialogue between various organizations and individuals and coalitions between the Hemophilia Federation of America and that is going to continue and have a bunch of different threads. Um, I'm sort of like way sidelined to a couple few of them. Mostly I was happy to meet Dan. Uh, I found him to be generous. Um, You know, he took well, like I I think I spoke uh, openly, but you know, use some language that if I was in his position, I might be like, oh man, that's, that's kind of a bummer. Yeah. But he was very kind and thought what we did is important and reasonable and it was like well we're starting in a great spot so genuinely excited to have him on to talk about symposium have real talk about some of the challenges that we're facing and you know make it something that the community can benefit from cool uh but that's enough chatting for now amy we're gonna get into our segment the second in our new gene therapy segment about this uh treatment option we don't have to caveat it anymore it is a treatment option what is the focus and what would you like us to know about this second segment well I, I think that's the thing. It's a, it's a full-blown, full-tilt treatment option now. Gene therapy is a part of the package, if you will. And I was really curious to ask doctors, like, very candidly. This is our opportunity to get, like, kind of nerdy. And I asked uh, two legends in our in our hematology space, Dr. Redding and Dr. Pipe, you know, should, should physicians be excited? Are they excited? Are they excited to have this be a treatment option? And it, as you can imagine, like fantastic answers and they're wonderful. And, you know, there's some really unique things in particular about the um, hemophilia B gene therapy that I think Dr. Pipe brings up. So it's a killer segment. You can't miss it. You can't because it's coming up right now. Ah! The following segment is intended for informational and educational purposes only and was written and developed by Bloodstream Media. In essence, gene therapy is a treatment that's used to fix a disease or a, or a problem that's caused by a gene that doesn't work right. So in the context of hemophilia, you know, the gene for factor eight or the gene for factor nine isn't functioning properly. And so that protein isn't being produced uh, or it isn't being produced in a form that functions. 
So either we introduce a functional copy of the gene, or there are some technologies that uh, potentially could actually correct the defect in the gene. Um, so all of that is, is gene therapy. Hi, everybody. That was Dr. Mark Redding, adult hematologist from the University of Minnesota, where he runs the Hemophilia Treatment Center. I asked Dr. Redding, as a physician, why he's so excited to have gene therapy part of the hemophilia treatment landscape. I think the most exciting thing is that, um, you know, even though we have really safe, effective treatments now for hemophilia, and we, and we have for, you know, for a long time, they all still require repeated injections given over a lifetime. And, you know, the newer therapies are subcutaneous, but it's still a sharp pointy thing. Um, and, and giving an injection is hard. Um, and none of the current treatments that we have have really achieved anything close to what we would consider a cure for, for hemophilia. And by cure, I mean, um, your clotting ability would be normal enough that you don't need any additional treatment if you injure yourself or if you have a surgic, surgical procedure um, and, and a treatment that would ideally be like a once a one-time treatment that would last you for many years and ideally your whole lifetime. So, so although we have really good, safe, effective therapies now, we don't have anything that really meets the bar of of cure or something close to cure. Um, I don't think gene therapy right now in its current forms is going to be a true cure, but it's a whole lot closer than the stuff we have. So I think it's, it's really about, you know, improving the quality of life with people living with hemophilia and not having to do repeated injections. Um, and, and then getting those factor levels to be sustained in a range where they don't have to worry about, you know, a bleeding event if they have an injury. This segment is brought to you by CSL Bearing a global biotherapeutics leader focused on serving the rare disease community by providing innovative therapies. They now have a first-of-its-kind treatment for hemophilia B. To learn more about this treatment option, visit beyondhemeb.com and download the B Support app from the App Store or Google Play to stay up to date on relevant information and to manage your treatment journey. This is a paradigm shift. Instead of having to replace the protein over and over and over again, we're going to take a different approach here, and we're going to have the patient's own liver be the factory that makes the factor nine. Speaking is Dr. Stephen Pipe, adult hematologist from the University of Michigan. And so uh, we've had the gene, we've cloned the gene for factor nine, you know, decades ago. That's how we've been making all these recombinant clotting factors from that gene. But that's sitting in a, in a factory somewhere in a big bioreactor making protein. Why don't we get the gene into the liver and have the patient's own liver make the factor nine for them? Um, this in concept could be a single treatment event. And then once the gene is there, the normal uh, protein machinery of the cell of the liver will be able to make the, the protein in perpetuity. So it's really a, um, there's a lot of reasons to be excited. Um, I think our excitement has, um, you know, we've had some ups and downs. Um, you know, some of the, some of the gene therapy studies have run into some problems and, I think this has taken us a whole lot longer than we thought it was going to. I mean, in the late nineties, when I was, I was in a lab doing research um, as a fellow and, and right after my fellowship training, you know, back then we thought gene therapy was going to be a clinical reality within 10 years. Um, and here we are, you know, almost 25 years further down the road from that. And it is a clinical reality, but it's taken a whole lot longer than we wanted it to be. So our, our excitement has, you know, has been going on for a long time and we've had some, some starts and fits, but um, we're getting there. 
So this is a very long story um, with gene therapy for, for all diseases, and, and hemophilia has been there from the very beginning. So Dr. Redding, why is hemophilia such a good match for gene therapy? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so it's because hemophilia is caused by a problem in one gene. So there's one gene that, that doesn't work properly, and, and because of that one thing, we have the, the, the disease or the disorder hemophilia. So we, don't have, we only have to fix one gene. We don't have to fix it all the way, right? So we don't need factor levels to be completely normal to have a significant impact in, the, in a positive way on what it's like to live with hemophilia. So I think in the early days, we were thinking, geez, if we could just get factor levels you know, above 5%, that'd be good enough. Um, so, so not having to correct it fully was, was appealing. And as I mentioned before, the animal models, so, so having you know, small and larger animal models to study this. I mean, if you don't have a good animal model, it's really hard to develop completely new treatments. Um, it's, it's, you know, trying stuff in humans that's never been done before and the, you know, the safety issues and all that. So, so we had animal models that were well described and well characterized that really helped a lot. Um, but I think the key is that it's a one gene causing the disease situation. There are a lot of other diseases like cancer, for example, where there's multiple different genetic issues that contribute to people developing cancer. And so you know, gene therapy for diseases like that is going to be a lot harder. Um, uh, so hemophilia, because of these things, I mean, I think I mentioned before, hemophilia has been there kind of all along in gene therapy. Dr. Pipe, with hemogenics for hemophilia B in particular, what are some of the unique aspects of the treatment? There's a few specific aspects of the hemogenics, which I think are really cool. So we got a gift from nature uh, about uh, maybe 10 years ago or so. There were patients in a city in Italy called Padua, and they were getting worked up at the hematologist because they had sky-high factor IX levels and they were getting blood clots. And their factor IX levels were anywhere from 700 to 900%. So almost, ten, to almost tenfold higher than the normal concentrations. And when they analyzed those patients, they had a single mutation in their factor IX protein that caused it to be hyperactive or highly active. And so they called this the Padua factor IX. Well, the, the scientists put two and two together and said, well, you know, the expression we were getting in those previous trials with factor nine, we were getting expression in like the five to 10% range. I mean, it was good enough to be a prophylactic therapy, but can we get, can we get even higher expression? So the, the thought was that if we combine the Padua variant inside these AV uh, transgenes, we might be able to get eight to tenfold higher factor expression. So uh, the, the clinical protocol here um, was originally developed by a company called Unicure before it was transitioned to CSL bearing. And they already had data with this vector with the wild type, the normal factor IX gene. Those gentlemen were expressing between 5 to 10% levels. They've been followed now for more than five years, stable expression. And uh, we wanted to know what would happen if we put the Padua gene in. So at our center and then a couple of other uh, places, uh, we dosed three patients with this modified, same vector, but modified with this Padua variant. And those three gentlemen uh, got factor IX levels basically up into the normal range of, uh, of factor IX expression. So that gave us 
um, uh, that really emboldened us that really this is the trick to combine these two elements together. So we then uh, launched into what your uh, listeners may know of a phase three trial. So all the patients in the phase three trial, we, we enrolled 54 patients into the phase three trial. They all had to be on standard of care prophylaxis with factor nine. Then they got a single treatment uh, event with um, atranidez, which became hemogenics. And then they were able to stop their prophylaxis. And uh, we followed the patients and we, we took a time frame between seven months post-treatment to 18 months, because that's when everyone had sort of stabilized their expression uh, from their liver. Some of the other benefits that I think I've heard from patients is um, some of them came into this study with some pretty challenging joints. You know, they still had active synovitis, you know, inflamed joints because of repeated bleeding. And uh, we saw uh, improvements in, in their joint uh, function, um, less pain. Uh, we saw them um, taking on new activities that they hadn't been doing previously. And uh, I've caught some of these guys when they've come to clinic for follow-up saying things like, you know, well, when I used to have hemophilia, which is, is really a, a, a really important um, aspect for me, there's been a mental health change here for the positive. They are now thinking like, I don't think about my hemophilia on a daily basis anymore, or on a weekly basis. I'm not infusing, I'm not getting those regular reminders that I have a missing protein anymore. I'm relying on this prior treatment event and uh, I don't have to think about my hemophilia. Um, the spontaneity that they report coming into their lives, the spontaneity and freedom that comes into patients' life when they know they've got this steady state expression, it's not changing on a monthly basis or now even on a yearly basis. I think that's a really important aspect of the transformative nature of this kind of treatment. Until next time, stay curious and embrace the possibilities of a whole new world ahead. Once again, this segment has been brought to you by CSL Bearing, which now has a first-of-its-kind hemophilia B treatment. Visit beyondhemeb.com or download B Support wherever you get your apps for more information. Thank you, Dr. Redding, and thank you, Dr. Pipe, again and always. Patrick, what do we got next? Great segment, Amy Board. Yay! We've got Maya Bloomberg, the Heme MP, on what Rare Disease Day means. Rare Disease Day is observed on the last day of February each year, which means it's even rarer this year given that it's a leap year. A rare disease is one that affects less than 1 in 2,000 people, and there are currently over 300 million people worldwide living with over 6,000 rare diseases, with 72% of them being genetic disease. Lack of awareness often leads to a delay in diagnosis and difficulty access with treatment and care. Hemophilia and other congenital bleeding disorders fall under a rare disease since hemophilia A affects around 1 in 5,000 male births and hemophilia B affects around 1 in 25,000. Now, in honor of Rare Disease Day, I'm going to highlight the most notable updates in the world of rare bleeding disorders that occurred over the past year. For starters, the National Hemophilia Foundation is no longer called NHF. It officially became the National Bleeding Disorder Foundation, or NBDF for short. This name change signifies a broader commitment to inclusivity, embracing all bleeding disorders. Now, that's a powerful step towards unity and understanding. 
But that's just the beginning. We're getting closer and closer to achieving health equity in the bleeding disorder community. When we think of treating other conditions like hypertension or diabetes, we treat to normalized levels. Yet with hemophilia, we've accepted low trough levels between one to 3%, when realistically this threshold was selected when cryoprecipitate was being studied and we were trying to prevent those serious life-threatening spontaneous bleeds. More on cryo later. Last April, we had the approval of Altuvio, which in my opinion is allowing us to get closer to achieving health equity since most patients achieve near normal factor levels for the first few days of the week. Emicizumab was the first subcutaneous novel treatment approved over six years ago, and it allowed us to push that threshold for bleed protection and cause a shift in how we manage hemophilia. But for those who want to stick to factor only, or maybe those who are particularly active, this is a nice option to consider. 2023 also brought our first gene therapy approvals for both hemophilia A and B, where a single infusion offers the possibility of converting someone from severe hemophilia to mild. Do I consider this a cure? No, there are still many unknowns that we can't answer, but it's the first generation and should continue to improve with more research that's already underway. There's a whole pipeline of more therapies being researched that are gonna allow a more individualized treatment plans so patients can accomplish their treatment goals, whether it's for convenience due to bad veins or wanting to be able to just maintain your active lifestyle. The excitement is palpable and we are here for it, but we can't overlook the World Health Organization's recent move. Precipitate, once a topic mainly discussed in high resource settings, is now considered an acceptable treatment in low and middle income countries. And this decision sparks some controversy since there are plenty of treatment options, both for combinant and plasma derived, that allow more appropriate treatment for hemophilia with less associated risks. I recommend checking out Patrick's recent episode, Breaking This Down Further. I've specialized in bleeding disorders for over a decade, first starting when a lactate was the only approved extended half-life product. Watching the hemophilia landscape evolve over these years has been very exciting and brings me so much hope that we're on track to achieving a more equitable future. Thank you, Maya, as always. And speaking of Rare Disease Day, Feb 29, only the 29th, once every four years, big year. Uh, we got the Olympics, we got Feb 29. What more do you want? And a Taylor Swift album. But, well, that's like always now. Okay. <laughs> that's just perennial. It's true. It's true. <laughs> um, but if you have anything that you would like to say about Rare Disease Day and what it means to you, let us know. We have a segment coming out on the next episode previewing Rare Disease Day with voices from across rare disease. If you would like to contribute to that in audio, video, or written word, mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com or once again, ping either bloodstreammedia.com, Amy Board, or Patrick James Lynch on social media and let us know what you have to say about Rare Disease Day. Show your stripes, community. Show your stripes <laughs> and care about Rare. Thanks as well to Dr. Mark Redding and Dr. Stephen Pipe, as well as to you, Amy Board, for mm. the second installment of our gene therapy segment that is supported by CSL Bearing. Visit beyondhemeb.com to learn more. And of course, thank you to our presenting sponsor, Takeda, without whom the Bloodstream podcast would not be possible. Visit bleedingdisorders.com. Thanks, Takeda. All right, Amy. So Feb 23rd, I already previewed. We'll have our Rare Disease Day segment. Mm -hmm. What else do we got going on on the next Bloodstream? We have a great elite athlete segment coming up with Perry Parker, who's a legend in this community. Yes, he is. The only person that I've known forever in this community is Perry Parker. Yeah. He's like a golf legend he was one he's... of the first like several names i it was like yes. laurie kelly perry yes. parker like yes. there's a bunch of names you just knew i was, he was so excited to see him so anyway he'll be on our next elite athletes segment that's fantastic um which is an amazing segment if you haven't seen yes. the videos if you're an audio only person listeners i would encourage you check out social media check out the video components because 
Um, I want to say we, and in particular, Keith Kornelik in the booth right now has done a remarkable job, not just producing the story and the audio, but the visuals that go along with that segment. So check them out if you haven't already. And with that, that is all for this episode. There will be more. <laughs> and you'll, you'll listen to them if you subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast, wherever you get your podcast, then you'll get the next episode delivered directly to you the moment it goes live. Y'all, just like Patrick said, mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com is where you can send all of your thoughts and things. We would love to hear your thoughts about the new appointment at NBDF, and we'd love to hear your thoughts about HFA, and we would love to hear your thoughts about Rare Disease Day. So send us a note on social media or feel free to email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. With that, I am your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your other host, Amy Board. And until next time, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.